What's up and welcome back to another episode of the Real Ballers Read podcast. We're here with a new friend and fellow bookstagrammer, Brittany Anderson. Brittany is an educator and founder based in Hartford, Connecticut, who has made her career as an advocate for culturally responsive education for urban youth. She is currently the Dean of Students and Culture at Covenant Preparatory School and the founder of Queens on the Move, which is an educational nonprofit organization aimed at building confidence, competence, and cohesion among young women of color. Brittany, it is so great to have you here. How are you doing? Hey guys, um, thanks for the intro. I'm really happy to be here. Super nervous, but yeah, we're going to get to it. Um, yeah, we will. We will. So, you know, when you filled out uh, the form for the podcast and I saw your explanation for the final revival of Opal and Nev. Um, it was one of the best explanations that I've seen so far. You said that the world is a better place because of this book. And so am I, period. Did I write period or was that the punctuation? No, uh, no, period. you wrote period <laughs> as a whole word. Because <laughs> period, like, period, period. Like, that, is, that is that. Um, stamped. Um, yeah, the final revival is so good. And I think that, yeah, I went in it like thinking I wasn't even going to like it, to be quite honest. But we were talking a little while ago, too, and you mentioned Ta-Nehisi Coates' um, quote. And I was just like, that's yeah. my guy. Like, I love everything that he has out, right? So if he's saying it, and then I'm like, all these people on Bookstagram are talking about it, like, I got to give it a chance. And then, like, instantly... Um, I was hooked. And I actually, the first time I read it, because I read it twice, I read it with the audio. Um, and oh, I don't the audio book. Twice. I don't even read books twice, but sometimes, like, when I'm walking my dog, like, you know, you miss some things. So I'm, like, going back in the audio. Um, and then visually, right, the book has things that sometimes the audio wouldn't include, like, the chapter titles or something like that. So um, reading it a second time just gave me a different I don't know, a different perspective. Um, and it, right, it allows you to pick up on some things that you might have not seen the first time. But going back to what I said, like, yes, it's so dope. Like, the world is absolutely a better place. Um, and I just think my personal knowledge base um, and perspective has also changed too. Yeah, and for the listeners that don't know, the novel is like kind of written as an oral history where all these different characters are speaking in their own voices. So like for the audiobook, was it a cast of characters that were like definitely speaking or how did it work? Yeah. yeah. So it was this cast of characters and I feel like they <laughs> did an amazing job like casting folks. Like I was telling um someone on Bookstagram at some point that like I literally started to Google something about these people and I'm like, oh, they're fake. They are yeah. fictional characters <laughs> that like I cannot look up their stories, yeah. right? Um, and then the voices of the audio just brought them to life. Like um, the imagery that I was like going through, like aligned with the voices is just, they did their due diligence um, with, with choosing. I don't even know the name, so I'm sorry of the people who did the audio, but the cast is dope. Um, and it des definitely allows you to like, feel like you're listening like a movie it's like a movie right yeah you know that that kind of reminds me of uh 
Tom Joyner used to have these like little little soap opera dramas on the radio. And I used to think those were the funnest thing ever because like because all the characters would be so into it. I can't imagine listening to audiobook of the final revival. Like I'm sure that's so fun. So fun. Like yeah. like if you do, like you'll be going back, not even because like for clarity, but just like I want to hear that again. <laughs> like um, <laughs> the person who plays Opal on the audio, oh my gosh. Like wow. I don't think they could have chosen a better person. I don't even know the woman's name. So Dang. sorry for that. But yes, really, really dope. Um, again, like Miles said, it's written in a series of interviews. Um, and so on the audio, you get like everybody's story. They get the points where they're like editor's note and all that good stuff. And it, um, yeah, there's so a different cadence for everybody who plays kind of a character that it just allows you to, they really just personify the characters of the book. And just for mm -hmm. a little context, too, could you give, like, a brief overview of, like, what the book is about, just so folks know, too? Yeah, so um, the final revival of Opal and Neve um, centers uh, a protagonist who's Opal. Um, Neve is also very central to the story, um, another, like, character I wouldn't necessarily call him a protagonist but uh the other kind of star um of the novel is Neve but really we get um Opal's growth throughout the whole thing um and so the novel is actually told the person who's um leading the interviews um her father was killed right at this showcase that opal and neve were um headlining at um and you get a little backstory like the the narrator's father had kind of this romantic relationship with opal and um it was actually an affair so this the narrator's in this very compromising position right because she is ultimately writing the book that we're reading but also interviewing all the key characters, trying to get the puzzles of the story of her father's life um, because he passed uh, very early on, right? And so, um, and then Opal and Neve become this major rock duo. Um, their career together is kind of short-lived because it is rocked by what happens at this showcase um, where the um, drummer, who is the narrator's father, is killed, right? And so it's almost like the end of Opal and Eve, but also the beginning of them independently. Um, and so the whole novel is um, based around this reunion that they're gonna have. Um, but the reunion kind of takes place at the end of the novel. So we get all of the backstory in between. Um, and I think like within chapters two and three, you get the entirety of the plot actually. Um, you literally know what's about to go down. Um, and if you read past that, it's because you're captivated by how it all happens, or you truly just want to know about these two characters. Um, and Opal just is a character I think I'll talk about forever. Um, like, you know, we all got our key characters and like in different novels that we kind of always like go back to. And like, to me, it's she's one of those characters that I will forever reference. Um, because I think she and me just symbolize so much uh, in our like current system and just like historically, um, Opal is a black woman, Neve is a white Brit, 
and right they come together to create some magic um but they're ultimately the trajectory of both of their paths after the fact is influenced by what happens at the riot and you kind of see the effects of privilege and kind of how it all plays out in the way that their careers go um but what i think i like about it is like Neve to me is a very controversial character also opal herself like she's imperfect she's just all around dope though and i think her imperfection makes her even more dope and uh but they couldn't be more vastly different and kind of the way they come together and kind of stand as representation for like i said privilege and um just a black woman in this world that kind of america doesn't see for black people like we're not you don't see our like us as rock right symbols often um but if you look historically we like started that momentum in in a way and it has been it's been changed over time but absolutely influenced by our history and our people so um them coming together in themselves might be seen as a controversial thing um and so i think the book just has layers like that that's it's dope and then like i said how it kind of all comes together t- at the end you're like Yo, yo, yeah. yo, <laughs> yo. <laughs> no, it's yeah, so funny because there are like fictional musical movies like Star is Born or Five Heartbeats, but like this read as so real, like that it's scary. Like, yeah, the <laughs> amount of detail that she weaves in about like the historical time. And just like, you know, she brings up real, real bands like the Rolling Stones or like, you know, has that part where she's just um, bringing in like Questlove and uh, Janelle Monet in the interview. And just it's so well done and written, but also not like overdone at all. Like she was able to capture like everyone's speaking voice like way too perfectly. Like, I I don't even know. It's really without hyping it up too too much either it really isn't like anything i've ever read where like i felt a real separation of like oh yeah this is like obviously fake like it did (laughs) now what got me i was so messed up Brittany, because like uh she because walton like or walton through the editor's voice was talking about that vogue cover and i was like oh i want to see who opal is so i like look up I look up the Vogue cover and I'm literally like Googling for like 20 minutes, like Opal Jewel Vogue cover 1972 or whatever. And I couldn't find it. And I was like, wait, am I fucked up? And then like, I literally like Googled, like, wait, is this a real story? It's like, no, it's fiction. I was like, bro. Period. Literally like them. Like somebody has to create me an artistic representation of this famous book, this famous cover, right? Of them like leaving the show like it has to be out there visually somewhere, right? Same. So I'm like, so. and then Some oh point. my god, way, yes, the way she is so intentional in her character creation, right? Um, and like you said, the history that's in it. I think she mentions Dorothy Dandridge very early on as one of Opal's um, motivators. She's talking about the Freedom Riders, right? The um, in the op- kind of the opening chapters, the sisters leave their home um, of Detroit and go stay with a relative. Um, they don't know why, but they're going down south. 
um, and they just kind of the stereotypes, right? That they're they're breaking the mystification of being down south. Like even from the very moment they see their aunt, um, and they just like she ain't wearing cotton picking clothes and all this stuff. She's kind of dressed to the nines to come pick them up, and so it just right it cast the south in a different way. And I think she was very very intentional about that. Um, and then like I think upon arrival. Opal's aunt notices that she like her hair, right? Is not yeah. condition. And so the fact that it was kind of like ignored and like overseen early on, and then she gets to the South, which is very, I think, juxtaposed perfectly because they're thinking that it's like the okie doke bear. Like, you know, everybody's doing their Southern thing and everybody's in, in the yard doing this thing. And her aunt's like, girl, what's going on with that head of yours? Like we got, and she gets her to a doctor immediately. Right. And they come to find out that she has alopecia and this, right. And it ultimately changes everything because now it's like, there's this medical diagnosis with it. It's not just the girl or whatever. Um, Right. And it could have changed her childhood had they got this diagnosis earlier. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, just the whole reason they end up in this very historically driven place was kind of dope and I think intentional. Um, yeah, Opal becomes and her sister becomes too. So, because you know, Miles too was uh, was mentioning how it's like a rule or a novelist rule to not have too much like fact, too many facts in your fiction. Um, but I was curious for you, Brittany, like. You know, where are you like more of a fiction reader? Do you usually like nonfiction more? Like, did this book kind of change your taste? Right. Because it really, I mean, it blew my mind just how well it like blended fact and fiction. So I'm curious, like, you know, how how that kind of like changed your outlook on books generally and what you read. Um, I don't know. I think I like like my favorite genre, I think, is historical fiction. So maybe I'm biased with this answer because I think that the way people are able to balance them both is very, very important. Mm -hmm. It is. uh, I love me a a nonfiction novel, but I think my brain has already compartmentalized it as work a lot of the time. Um, And so depending on the capacity that I'm taking it in, like I rather take nonfiction in, in a group's capacity. Like I do like, I like, I'm a note taker. So, right. We can like, everybody read a chapter and go back and we can go back and kind of come together. But for me, a lot of that work that I do in the nonfiction realm is for PD stuff, right? It's cause I need a gibbet for something that I'm trying to teach. Like, it's not really the way I enjoy reading, right? I like it cause I love mm-hmm. facts. I love learning about my history, but it's, I get my pen and paper out all the time for stuff like that. I mean, for Opal and Eve, like I realize what a book is really, really good. I take active notes regardless of it's fiction or not. So when I was like prepping for talking to y'all, I was like, like I said, the first time I took it in, I did it on audible. Right. So like, I'm like, I had so many clips and bookmarks and they're not easily transferred and I'm a paper person. So like, I literally went through all my clips and bookmarks and started writing them in my notebook. And I'm like, oh yeah, yo, I forgot about this. I forgot about this. I forgot about this. Um, but it had like, I'm like, I have to get this quote written down somewhere. Right. And when I look back at it, like so much of what I wrote is not the history, right? Maybe there's a couple names of some people like, like how I mentioned Dorothy Dandridge and like, she very vividly talks about an image that I think is actually a real picture of Dorothy. Um, right. It makes me want to look that stuff up and like, where were the freedom riders, right? Little, little tidbits. Mm-hmm. I like that. But 
in general, um, I just think I use nonfiction and fiction differently. Um, and so they're equally important to me. But when I'm going home after a long day, I'm looking for something that's going to pull me in. Um, I want it to teach me something, too. But after I've spent the whole day teaching and learning, I want something that's for joy. And that's something yeah. I can easily be um, immersed into. Mm. So, yeah, I agree with you, though. This book, like, weaves it in a way that I didn't even think about it. To me, it's like it had to be the way it was written, if that makes sense. Like, right. yeah. I don't. Yeah. yeah. So no, uh, another geeking out point for, for me, though, <laughs> like even the way she wrote about the music and like the fashion. I'm like, did she write the album? Like, I feel like she must have composed <laughs> this music in order for her to write about it in this way. And the <laughs> outfits too. I was like, no way she didn't have these outfits on or like had them on someone else. Period. There's just no way that these things are described in the way they are unless you know what I'm saying. Yes, like unless there's some physical manifestation yes. of these things, how does one do this? Right? How yeah, yeah, how does one create like I like I said, that picture, that part, like the picture, sure. the moment where oh, I don't know if y'all read up to that point, but like there's a, a big like point at the showcase that kind of like drives the story where it has to do with the clothing that right. Opal is wearing. And I think clothing in itself stands as this, this symbol in itself. Like everybody's clothing was closely aligned to their personality and like mm -hmm. ultimately the way we see Opal, right? From the very beginning is based off like what she has on and what like her infatuation, like her infatuation with what her aunt has on and with, um, the woman on the um, the stories, I think they mentioned like Guiding Light and some other stuff that I know is like real like stuff that I think my grandma might wa might have watched at the time and like was immersed into like she pulls from these sources like fashion sources and they ultimately little tidbits of all the people that she's seen play into what she wears. Right. And like um, LaFleur. Oh my God, my favorite character, like her, uh, her boy. What I like? You can't tell me this man doesn't exist somewhere. That's like, oh man. Yeah, and and like they would take one of her outfits, right? And she would like turn it like a diamond with the other characters, and she would have five characters say like, "Oh, she looked crazy like a bird," and then Nev would would be all, "Oh, like no, she was the most stunning thing I had ever seen in my life." And then so, like, hey, yeah, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it was like, "Whoa, what does she look like?" Because like they had every character, yeah, des des describing what they had seen. It was just, yeah, just really geeking out over the way it was written. Honestly. Yeah, me too. I think a lot of my infatuation with the novel is the geeking out of the details, like her attention to detail and the fact that she just didn't overdo it in any way. Like, girl, how long were you writing this? Like, I just have to go. That's like, what I'm saying. Debut novel. Like, nerd out. <laughs> right now, I have to nerd out about Donnie like, yeah. and start stalking her on social media because I haven't got to that point yet. I think I'm still yeah. like, yeah, I, I like, still, like trying to find people to talk to the book about like y'all like. I'm like, you know what? This is the way to get me in the pocket because I'm about to go in, <laughs> right? And she had said that she started the book in 2013, um, but she 
decided to go to um, grad school, like the, to get an MFA in, in order to finish it. And that was around 2015 and then finished it in 2018, but then edited and, re- and revised it up in, until, you know, its final date. So about eight, eight years, but yeah, it, wow. it's wow. a little bit of love, especially to, for it to be the debut novel is like nuts, bro. Like, yeah. She yeah, lives so here in Brooklyn. Too, right? Run into her. I know. Yeah. <laughs> like, how did you write this? <laughs> like, no, tell me your secret. Like, what? Exactly. But like, how did you even start? And uh, to me, like, you must have started with the character, right? Like, maybe, like, she had to start with the character because the plot is like, the plot is dope too, though. Sometimes I'm like, after I'm like geeking out about a book, I'm like, oh, I guess what I really liked about the book, like, this book I read, um, how beautiful we were. And in the moment, the author is like escaping me. And I probably wouldn't be able to pronounce her name anyway, but she is an African author. But that book, so good. It's like about a fictional place, um, a fictional village um, that is rocked by American tech and oil and stuff like that. And how, um, yeah, it's like, it's really, really dope. But it, at the core of it, I'm like, well, the plot is very simple. Like it's um, minority groups, right? Marginalized people uh, feeling the weight of the oppression of kind of some of these political systems, right? Um, and it's a very like simple story. Like, you know, this the village gets rocked, like over time, the generations are feeling the effects of it and so on and so forth, right? But it's another book I talk about so often because of the characters. And I think the way you put these characters in settings and positions and scenarios, right? And like the things that they say, and essentially they just serve as a catalyst to kind of to some messages that these authors want to tell us, right? And mm-hmm. their views um, and their viewpoints on systems, right? Not necessarily all American systems, right? Depending on where the author's from, but like Walton per se, like very much a commentary on the American way, right? And how how stuff goes down. Um, so to me, it's like, I don't know how she went about it, but the way those characters were developed is like, is mind blowing to me. Um, yeah, well, I mean, let's, let, let's get into that though. Cause uh, you were saying before how Opal is like one of your, you know, absolutely favorite characters. So like, why, like what, what stood out to her at first? Like, you know, uh, you mentioned as well that her imperfections just make her even more of an amazing character, right? Like, let's, let's talk about Opal for a sec. What do you think? Well, yeah. So like from the very beginning, right, you're met with like this black woman who is um, like, doesn't care. Like she is walking in her truth always. Right. And then you're also met with like the woman who's telling this story and telling you that Opal essentially slept with her dad, like, and she wasn't even born yet. And then her dad ends up getting killed at this showcase um, where Opal did something very like intentional, but it essentially like was a spark to a night that Neve, we come to find out that Neve very much had a hand in, but that um yeah that you're met with opal from the very beginning of okay this young star is with this like is with this drummer 
who she knows that is with this woman and right all these things so from the very beginning you get that but let's let's go back to her childhood like the fact that she was kind of getting made fun of and for her hair and her appearance and being darker skinned and all these things um but it didn't really rock her confidence and i think early on she says that i was tough right and so her sister pearl right is juxtaposed with her sister pearl who is very um kind of sheltered and right her view on the world is one of optimism right even i think they discuss um how their mom discusses their dads because they have separate they have different dads um and opal kind of talks about how pearl will just accept the okie doke from the mom and like she's like mom is not even describing our fathers in a way that they could be superheroes for all we know but she's not even giving us real names right and so opal in a way doesn't quite inquire too much about it because she's like whatever she's telling me ain't the real anyway versus her sister who's like taking these tidbits and probably like on her little notebook making a dad out of them right and like my dad was this amazing person and so when opal like references her sister like being like yeah like she took that okie doke like yeah it wasn't me like kind of thing like you get this real like in your face type girl that i'd like i don't know i loved um, but I was also very, very annoyed in the way that she was objectified, hypersexualized by these men that she comes to meet when she's like doing these gigs with her sister and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but from the very beginning, Opal is Opal, right? Until the end, she is um, Opal. She's confident. She's talented. She's intentional. She's just dope and um like I and so going back to the the imperfections I think that's part of it for me it's like putting people on pedestals doesn't allow you to really get to them Mm -hmm. right because your idea of them is one that you have almost made up based on what you want them to be right but we're with the real so she's like Donnie's like you're gonna you're gonna love her anyway and I think that's that's why I love her so much because of the way she was pieced together. Um, and that despite all of the things that you could blame on her, right? She also is just herself every step of the way um, and unapologetic about it. What is um, one trait that you think you and Opal share and then one trait you don't have in common? <laughs> okay. Um, at some point she says, being poor made her stubborn and creative, Mm. right? Struggling, I think, and like, I had a pretty good childhood. Like, I think we were shielded away from a lot of the the issues, maybe financial issues that my mom was having, but I had an amazing childhood. Um, And I was able to kind of like bring my sister along and like, I was just creative from my, from, from the time I was, like out and about and doing things. So I was a part of a lot of groups, um, drilling and like the parades and just different things like that. And because I knew that really we couldn't spend really like going to the mall was cool, but my mom ain't have it to give us money to be just splurging at the mall. Right. So it's like, you'll go to the mall with your $20 and like, you'll get something to eat and you'll buy something from Hollister. And then you'll, that experience kind of going to be, it's going to be what it's going to be. Right. But versus like going down to the community center with my sister playing ball for a lot of time. 
we'll get to that because a lot of my childhood was spent playing basketball, thinking that yeah. I was gonna want. I think that I wanted to go D one or do these things, right? And then ended up like choosing the creative route instead. Um, and so there's that part. Um, Opal is very creative. She she knows what she wants, um, and I think that's where we um, align a lot. I think her boldness, though, is maybe where we <laughs> might diverge. Like, I want to be that way. I like to think I'm that way. Um, and when it comes to my uh -huh. students and advocating for them in the ways that they need to, um, I do it. Sometimes it doesn't, it, it's not stemmed from me, though. You know what I mean? I feel like a lot of the times, it's crazy, but like my ancestors be see, speaking through me a lot of the time, right? And I'm able to pull from this place that I'm like, oh, junk, I said that? Yeah, that, right? But it's because like, ain't nobody gonna play with my people, right? Ain't nobody gonna play with these boys that we're doing this work for. And at any point we are steering off the path of them and their greatness, then I got, there's, there's that voice in me that has to speak up. I think when it mm -hmm. comes to my own needs and stuff like that, um, and kind of making like, there was a point where Opal goes to Paris for some time in the novel and like, everybody is pissed at her. Like, and she's just doing her Paris thing, like taking gigs, trying to get her mind right. Not me, <laughs> not me, right? It's like, ideally, like, yeah, I'd probably be thinking about being in Paris. Would I go and like have all these people pissed off and be like mad at me and like, oh crap. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if we, we, um, we align there, but the need and the want to be that wow. kind of unapologetic in the way that I move is something I aspire, absolutely. Yeah, it's a process, you know, you on your way, you on your way. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, she was able to make all the characters like an amalgamation of like so many different traits that they were almost like star signs, man. Like you were just like, you just related to them. Um, and, and, you know, an amalgamation of even herself, the way you were talking about, you know, if she thinks of the characters first or the plot, I was reading uh, one of her inter interviews and she was saying that for her second novel, she was dreaming of the characters. And so I'm thinking that was exactly how she thought of the first novel. And then I realized that Nev, as a song, as a songwriter, was always thinking of characters to talk about in in his song. So that's like Donnie's trait echoed in Nev, which is really interesting. Oh, snap. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Speaking of Nev, he's just so... Uh, he's just such a controversial character for me. And it's funny because from the very beginning, I was annoyed by him. From the very beginning, I was annoyed. Why? Yeah. <laughs> He's mediocre as fuck. Like, right? And like, because of that mediocrity, he y'all are on the search for something that's gonna make him pop. And then you meet Opal. She's dope, and she's she scrutinized like crazy, right? And they're like. And he loves her, right? He wants her to work, and like yeah. he's going to bat for her in a way that like he shouldn't even have the standing to do because you're mediocre in himself, right? And so the privilege that we see early on annoyed me, right? Like 
So it's no surprise how the book kind of like comes together. Um, and I don't know, I think when I see, when I think of Neb, I think of nice white people um, and being performative and really, <laughs> really taking black art and doing something real, uh, using it to, to get their foots in the doors and make them a little bit more provocative and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And so, yeah. yeah, just the way she crafted him, but it's also at the same time, it's hard to like hate the man too. Right. And I think that's where I'm like, damn Donnie, like I can't even hate him completely because of the way he really does care for Opal, right? And like appreciated the work that they did together, but to see his career go on and him be so successful off the back of her, and then the way that everything she had to fight for, and even like the when she was in Paris and he was on drugs, it's just like none of that stuff, it was all kind of like pushed to the side and like downplayed. And it was made as the biggest problem, right? Was Opal like leaving her post. And it's like, she left her post cause she can't work with her partner because he is addicted to opioids, right? But the way that that was covered up and it was all good and wrapped in a bowl and he goes on to be great. And essentially like, you know, um, is crazy, right? And I think yeah. it again is echoed in the America we're in. Just the way you said said that too. One of the mo- moments that came to mind were the um, Justin Timberlake and Janet Jackson controversy at the Super uh, at the Super Bowl. Because coming out of that, Janet's career you know took a nose dive, and Ju- Justin's did the exact opposite. Like she took all the heat for it, even though he was the one that like pulled off her like top. And it was like it's not even a character flaw. Like it was a it was a clothing mishap and somehow like Janet's career takes a tumble out of that where his skyrockets, like it's crazy. Like he, he took- Oh my gosh, that was a perfect example, Miles. Like yeah. literally a perfect example. Yeah. Like, yeah, like circumstances outside of her control have contributed to, and I, I can't even call it her demise though, right? Like I literally, maybe for Janet, like her career took this, right? This pause and like, things got harder for her, right? But in the same way, like, I think that's also what I like about Opal is like, yes, she was met with all this fault. Like everything's her fault. It didn't stop her though. Um, And I think she stood in her power regardless. It has just kind of rooted her into this activist um, role. And that's also where I think our, um, we most align, like I'm creative, but I think I'm an advocate for whoever Mm. right whatever I'm doing as so particularly like in the work that I do in education um I like to say that like I'm the dean of students and culture right but I don't make the culture right I facilitate it I make space for it right I mm. give resources to attain it but I'm not right if I leave I don't the culture shouldn't change right it should it should stay what it is and I think that's kind of to take like a little turn from um that to kind of why I'm in this role rather than this diversity and equity practitioner role as like um my life's work is because I think a lot of the time 
the equity person on a campus, like the dean of diversity or director of equity practitioners, right? First of all, diversity is so, it's an umbrella for so many things like ability, race, and other things, right? But so often it's seen as like, they, look, they only look at the race part, right? And so the director of diversity, especially if it's a black woman, it's like, it's met with a lot of tension on these campuses, right? Like you're the person, the equity walks with you. And that's not the way equity works, right? We're all diversity directors and equity practitioners, right? Because we all care about our kids getting what they need, right? And I think that's mm -hmm. the way it should be seen. But when you put it in a person, sometimes it's them end all be all. And I truly don't think that that's how the work gets done, right? Somebody can help facilitate that work. So it could be dope it, depending on like the way the schools are using their practitioners too. But I think a lot of the time it ends up being, well, that's the race girl over there. Like what we about to do for Black History Month, right? And the person that drives this kind of performative, performative nature of it, right? But what are you doing for your black and brown students on a daily basis is what I'm trying to figure out. And so as I was in this position to kind of move into that role versus the Dean of Students and Culture role, to me, it's a programming thing, right? I can facilitate this work. And by being that, the teachers get that too, right? So like I led the boys through this whole school reading of Stamped, right? In my brain, I hope the teachers pick it up too, right? But I didn't say that to them specifically because the work that I'm doing is with these boys. Um, and I think that um, kind of building them up and giving them perspective, right? On important things, especially as like black, brown, Asian boys um, is the pro um, primary demographic I teach. It's just, for me, it's important to invest in them mm -hmm. um, rather than investing in some of these programming things that are kind of one and dones. Um, and so that's where the spear board comes in because I still get some of that work. I actually sit on the board and I'm the school's rep. So for these other diversity practitioners, right, the culture part is the part they care about, right? So I can chop it up with them. I can network about what they're doing as a kind of the person on their campus that is in charge of this work. But I can also talk about how I'm reaching everybody in the school and we can kind of trade and it's an exchange. So I'm still getting it right. But that's not all it's about. Um, and so to me, it's like if you do not set the culture, it will set itself. But that's why I don't make it right. I just provide opportunities to enhance it and 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 I help to drive it. But really, it's it's the community and um, and and kind of how we all work together to, to kind of make stuff happen. You know, along along with that, I mean, what what's your what's your story with you know wanting to be so committed into education as you are, right? Like, what was it like for you in school um, during your time in Providence College? How that changed anything? As well as just you know, of course, like once you graduated, you were right into right into it. So, like, what's your story? Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So, um, let my mom tell you. I've been wanting to be a teacher since I was like four. Um, I think she said, and I think she, she even mentioned recently, like, cause I was like at Providence talking to like some on a panel recently. Yeah. So, um, and she was like, you just all, she was like, you just, you've always signed up for stuff that you don't even have to sign up for. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, and she's like, yeah, I remember one time you wanted to do this book report 
And like, you have been out of school, it's like summer vacation. And she's like, you've been out of school for mad long. And you just kept telling me about this book report you wanted to do. And I was like, girl, you don't have a book report you got to do. And um, but she was like, you were just adamant about doing it and reading this novel and like, you know, reporting on it after the fact. And so I think from the very, like, from when I was a kid, like being a teacher was something that I aspired to be, but it was juxtaposed with the want to be financially stable and set. And to me, like, I hadn't seen his, like historically teachers that make a lot of money. So I feel like going into PC, I was a, I was a, a pre-med actually. And like halfway oh, through, I was like sophomore year, I switched to education. Cause I'm like, I can't fake the funk anymore. I like science, but I like people and I like teaching more. And so inevitably my first teaching job was a science teacher, right? Like, cause I had spent so much time in those hard sciences and doing all that stuff, really doing all the groundwork to get into the neuroscience program at PC to kind of throw it all away, <laughs> like, decide I was going to do education instead and walk into the, uh, the Dean of Education's office and be like, hey, do y'all take people sophomore year? And she's like, yeah, you probably can't go abroad, but you can join. <laughs> I'm like, all right, word. So um, just, but then once I was in that world, it just seemed natural. Like other than the work that I had to do and I like uh, jobs on campus. And like, I think I worked at Price Right too at some point. Um, the written work was a lot, but the work in the classroom seemed natural. And I'm like, people like do this for work, like, I'm just rocking with the kids. Like yeah. now since then I haven't done elementary school though. Cause I think that's where my brain has changed. Um, and I don't necessarily think I want to do that elementary special ed type work. I mean, all my students get the accommodations and modifications. Cause I think we should be doing that for all kids. Um, we prioritize it for special needs and stuff like that as we should. But if we can extend that over into kind of urban education, then everybody gets healed and everybody gets holistic education, right? And it's not because of this, this, and this, right? Um, everybody's just getting what they need. And that's what we should be doing. And a lot of the time, all right, our public school system is not doing those things. And it could be for different reasons. I, don't, I wouldn't put it on teachers. Um, I put it on resources, right? I put it on our system uh, in the way that resources are prioritized in the way um neighborhoods run and you know and stuff like that um and buy-in and, and poverty essentially like right like people like to say that i don't know a parent that doesn't show up for a conference doesn't care about their kid and it's just like have you considered that they work or have you changed your schedule to suit the families that you're claiming to meet the needs of like right had the school looked at the way they're doing stuff and how that affects the population of people you're serving. And so I think, um, yeah, I had a very good experience, uh, student teaching experience in PC, but my first job out of PC was a service member for this Nativity Miguel School, which is the type of school that I'm in now, but just a different, um, a different one. Nativity Miguel schools are like schools that have a faith-based uh, like foundation Okay. but they pride themselves on like extended day and opportunities for kids. So depending on the mission of the school, those opportunities might look different. And so the school that I was at before um, was very set on kids getting experiences that they hadn't had before. So like I stayed on a farm in Vermont with some of my students for like a week and we lived farm life, right? That was really dope. <laughs> we did a lot, we went to a lot of plays and 
we went to Niagara Falls one um, one summer and like camped and did a lot of stuff outdoorsy. But like that school, um, the idea was like get these inner city kids out to different opportunities because a lot of the time their counterparts in these academic institutions that are seen better than them have just had different opportunities, right? They've had mm -hmm. the chance to try lacrosse or this thing or squash, right? Or something like that, where our kids are just consistently being fed basketball and basketball. And I love me some basketball. Okay. So we're going to get to that, but like there's other things and there's other kids and there's other types of intelligences. And a lot of the time they're just not, given those opportunities. And so I wouldn't say I made this decision to like actively not go into public school because I was successful in a public magnet kind of school, right? But to see that like, there's a school, like we're here till 5.30, that's cool. But what are we doing in the afternoon that we're keeping these kids this long? And to see that we were um, aligning kids with their passions, like that to me is we could spend the extra time doing that. Um, and then like, Weekend opportunities was it. So like that last school I was at, it was really a seven day week kind of school um, and mandatory summer school for everybody too. So wow. like we get, a lot, we get a lot of school, but we get the month of June off usually. And um, so everybody takes a break in June. Then we come back in July for summer academy. And then the kids get most of August off until school starts and the teachers come back halfway through for PD. Um, so that was the school I was at, but I was in an AmeriCorps service position. So really those volunteer positions are like two years. You could do your service years for two. Um, and at, at that point, the school has to decide whether or not they have the resources and stuff like that to kind of put you on as a full faculty or whatever. But at the time, I was very, very mm -hmm. set on getting my master's, which I still haven't done because when you're trying to just keep going, like sometimes you don't you don't take the step back. So I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. But at the time I was solely focused on getting my master's, right? Cause like, like all my college roommates and everybody that I was with, like did the college thing and nobody took a year off. And to me teaching at that school felt like taking a year off. And I'm like, I need to get back onto my, my life's plan. Right. And then I was immersed into the school for two years. The school decided that they didn't want to fund our master's program. So, right, that put me in a very weird place going back to the fact that I like to know what's ahead, right? So I had this plan to be there for at least four years, for five, because I think the master's would have took me like three doing it part-time. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where I was really set on educational leadership, right? So the school tells us they're not paying for our master's. Oh, shit. Like, okay, I just literally moved outside of my native city to come here to work for pennies um, and let y'all feed me and can't even really afford to do dinner. I think I'll, yo, y'all, I was making like, like 350 or something every two weeks, like $350, something crazy. Mm. It's a AmeriCorps position. I think yo, the AmeriCorps will get like $500 or something now, but I was making 300 and like 60 something dollars bi-weekly to work about 55 hours, 60 hours at the school. Right. Oh, no. Tell me two years after that. Damn, yo, like our board ain't looking right. Our budget's looking <laughs> a little weird. Like we don't know if we're gonna be able to give y'all that masters. And so oh, that that's crazy. Isn't that crazy? So then after we um they were like, give us some time. We're gonna go talk to the board and we'll come back to you with a decision in three weeks. You can't say that to somebody like me, because that's not that's not nothing like that is like 
the ambiguity, like that breed, that breeds fear, that breeds like it's just too many things that it breeds that it literally just put me into action. I'm like, I need to find a job because these like and even at that point, I was like, I don't even think I want to teach here anymore because they got me all the way fucked up, like all the way. Like, <laughs> like I don't know at what point uh, we diverted from the course, but this ain't what I planned for. And so um, I start looking for different opportunities closer to home because I still wanted to like teach in Hartford and had it. So I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna just go back to my nat native city. I'll find another school that's gonna pay for my master's, right? Cause I was still on this master's thing, but I also was very, very like immersed in urban ed at this point. And like yeah. had, had a great experience with my students and like through all those different experiences, just got to know them in different ways. And right, and when you get to know kids outside of the classroom teachers, take the time to get to know your kids outside of the classroom. Cause that's really a lot of the times who they are right? Like outside of these structural right. <laughs> places, like the classroom is not really where you're going to really, really get to know what a kid loves, right? Like it's these standing in line at Niagara Falls trying to wonder why we, why it's taking so long. That's when you get to know somebody, right? Or the car ride onto this trip and they're telling you about how they spend their time, right? That's when you really get to know somebody. And when you get to know them for real, you can take that all back to the classroom. And that's how you you meet kids where they're at, right? Because then you can now put in some references and, and you can talk to them on a level where they know that you actually care about what they're doing because you spent the time to ask mm -hmm. them um, and learn kind of who they are. So I end up back in this school, I end up back literally like down the street from my uh, high school and middle school um, at an all boys version of my type of school. So that's kind of what, the only thing I wanted was like, I was like, if I teach in public school, like it'll be like towards the end of my career, like pay homage to the folks that did me right, right? But I'm like, right now I wanna go back to another place like this that's doing similar work, right? And really getting parents like to the conference comment that I made about like accommodating for parents. We did seven to seven conferences. Like there's no school on conference day. Why? So we can meet the needs of everybody who needs. So if we really want day, we want all our parents to come, you got to open the floor for them all to have the opportunity to come. Right. Right. And so from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., we're there. Right. And we kind of split it up because that ends up being a really, really long day. <laughs> um, but we so we end up splitting it over two days. But we do one all like a whole day. Right. For the parents who can take time off and do it. Right. And then we do another day where it's like from four to like eight. Right. And so everybody like and, and in that way, you get your parents unless there's something different. And now after the pandemic, we open up to the Zoom world. Right. And we're like, oh, we can like connect with people through this. Like we can do the conference like this. Right. So you open that as another opportunity for the parents. And then we're really talking about doing the work rather than just saying we're doing the work and then secretly being like, yeah, the parents don't care about them kids <laughs> and all that. Kind of. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to be in a place where we're like prioritizing making opportunities for the kids that we're claiming to serve rather than making excuses for them. Right. So hmm. that's kind of how I ended up in the school that I'm at. And so that was my first job post the service year. And then um, was there for a couple years teaching solely ELA classes. Um, but through my ELA classes, I'm building rapport. Then I ended up becoming the school's rep for SPEAR because this equity work is very, very important to me, right? And like building this culturally responsive library in my classroom and just the library for the school. Like, do you have kids stuff that my kids want to read? 
Like, cause maybe that's why, you know how many kids I was met with? Like we do interviews, we interview parents and the kids. And so many kids when they come to us are like, I don't like to read this. And I'm like, I bet you I changed that. Like, and it ain't me. It's just the the resources that are out there. I'm like, I just don't think we've had the, I don't think I knew how much I love to read. My mom says I did apparently, but it just, it was hard to find what I really, really liked. And I'm like, to know that there's like, to pick up, now I can pick up a book, pick up another one, pick up another one. Like I'm trying to figure out when I'm gonna have the time because so many of my people have their voices and the nuances of blackness showed that it's yeah. like a plethora versus like having that book you held onto and kept rereading as a kid because it was the only one that represented you, right? We're in a different place. And so if we can open that door to the kids that we're serving now, it changes their trajectory in school, right? We don't have a teacher saying they don't, they don't have the attention span that works or this and this and this. And it's like, no, miss, your class is boring. Like you're mean, like that's what the problem is. <laughs> so let's get the resources and let's really talk about what it is that we're doing. And then, then if that still doesn't work, then maybe we could talk about that. But I'm like, I think now it's you. <laughs> and so much of education is like, it's not you. The teachers got to learn. The kid, kids got to learn regardless, right? Don't smile till December. Like, nigga, what? Like, what are you talking about? Don't smile till December. Like, <laughs> you don't want to get to know your kids till December? Word. All right, you try that. Let, let me know how that goes for you, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that kind of stuff. So I just think we have to break so many and dispel so many of the, the myths that exist in this um, school system that yeah. before we talk talking about what these kids can and can't do. Um, and so I, I like to think that the place that I'm at helped to drive that culture and um, – and focus on rapport building and then teaching is very very easy it can be i think at some point i felt like i was doing something wrong because i'm like i just feel like this probably shouldn't be so easy like i should be getting paid for this like i'm having a lot of fun like i don't know this is not the way work usually goes like i feel like there has to be some tension that i'm met with at some point and i you know manifested it and it came with the administrative role and you know, but teaching in itself, <laughs> teaching in itself would be very, very easy. <laughs> and like, stuff. No, I mean, I've, I've been a teacher for a very small amount of time. I'm very nascent in my career in education, but your thorough and beautiful story just proved to me that like, teachers are, are kind of a misnomer. Like, teachers are, simul are simultaneously like therapists, entertainers and informers obviously um like party starters opportunity world creators you know it's it's there's so much that that, that you're doing at once while also standing against the um powerful tide of this this system and politics and just like a thousand and one reasons to be cynical like you wrote, you wrote, you you wrote, you remain an optimist, and you echoed all of all of that just now in like your uh, story. So, thank you. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. We do so many things. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, and you, it's funny because you just do it seamlessly too, right? Like you go from teaching English to a kid running up yeah. to me, Miss. I almost chopped my finger off. I just burnt myself with some noodles. Like, I'm like, oh. okay, <laughs> like, <laughs> put on the gloves, like. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, or like 
the technology, right? Like they're on tech and then you've got them communicating with people from different countries. And there's just like so many layers to everything now. Like you said that you just, you have to know, you have to spend the time getting to know your people, your kids. What um, is a moment that you are like most proud of that you got to be a, be a part of in your whole edu edu educational journey? As a teacher or like a student? Anything. That's hard. Yeah. Mm. I guess it might, I guess I'll just, I'll say it. It might've been when I was like teaching in New Haven. Cause that was a tough time to like mm. making $300 in a, you know, and like doing it from a place where I grew up is different right. than doing it from somebody who's taking their gap year and still living at mama's house and has right. all the resources they need to still be doing this thing. And like, but also, you know, but for me, it's like, I'm actually at this school for in, for intentional reasons, right? For me, it's like, okay, I was an ed major, but sometimes it's really hard to get into schools, like public schools, whatever. You just got to have your paperwork, blah, 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 like do your interviews and, you know, things like this. But in this independent school world, like people are fighting for these positions um, and all of these things. And so like juggling all that and just literally like trying not to call on my grandma to like bring me food to New Haven, like just trying to figure shit out. Um, in a way where I think back to it and I wish I would have welcomed more help and like let more people in on what I was dealing with, right? But you just, I don't know, we're made to like be better and have people have higher expectations of us. So we we couple that with doing everything by ourselves. Um, and that's not the way other people are doing it, particularly white America. Like they're not. Um, and there's nothing that says that we have to do it. But I think there's this myth that do it by yourself. You struggle through it. It'll be the best. And so I think that made a, my job a little harder um, in New Haven. But at the same time, all that struggle, I think, bred creativity, like Opal had said, in the sense that, like, that's where Queens on the Move was birthed. Um, while I was a science teacher in my whole time um, in New Haven. And one thing that kept happening was my eighth grade girls kept getting into it with each other. Now, the way these nativity schools run and the ones that I've worked in is like the kids travel together. They're very small class sizes as part of the model, but mm -hmm. the kids travel with each other the whole day, right? And like when it comes to lunch and these different things, teachers are immersed into it too. So like I'll just have had taught eighth grade science and then like I'm going down to sit with the eighth grade girls for lunch. And we're all eating round table family style together. And um, but again, that's where you really see where the drama is, because that's where I'm like, everybody kind of held it together for science class for the most part. Then they get downstairs and you see the people who really got beef. Right. And now the girls don't want to sit together at the table. And you got this person like hiding out in the bathroom. And I'm like, right, you got just so many different things happening that I'm like, it's only like 11 of y'all. Y'all are going to kill each other if we don't find some common ground. Um, and I think a lot of it is goes back to the idea of being in competition. And it's just like black women do not have to be in competition. Right. And and I don't know where that was bred and, and kind of all that stuff. But we're all trying to fight for this success that is almost like we don't work together because I want to be like it, it could be a product of tokenism. Right. Like it could be so many different things. But it's like I wanted to see the girls get along. You know, I'm like, if y'all could get along, science class would be better. Sitting at the lunch table, I felt like 
I was getting sentenced every day having to sit with them girls at lunch. I'm like, yo, I just taught them. Like, why I got to sit with them too? Like, and they got beef with me. They got beef with each other. Like, <laughs> some girls think I'm being nicer to the black girls. Like, just all these different myths that were going around, but they just did not provide space for connection or growth or creativity, right? And that's kind of where Queens on the Move came in. It came up as an elective. Because I'm like, well, maybe if everybody focuses on their success and things that they do well, they won't be looking at this person to be doing anything. So the cohesion part came with literally wanting us to like women of color to work better, like with each other from the start. Um, like I did a lot of fighting in middle school, y'all. I got suspended a whole lot of times um, when I think about it. And I tell my students now, they're like, for real? I'm like, yeah, because I just seem so unbothered by a lot of stuff. Like, that'd be crazy. But I'm like, it's because of all the mistakes I made then. Right. And if teachers might have pulled us together to do more things together and like showcase our talents and passions with one another, we might have gotten along a little bit better. But I want to save the next girl from getting suspended six times in seventh grade because there's no need. Right. Not when you're building community and like you love you have genuine love and respect for the people we're working with. Um, mm -hmm. and, so, and then like also being smart is cool. Right. And that's a thing at my school, like being smart have an ambition like all that is dope you're not looked at as you're not an oreo here like i don't know that it like you know what i mean just dispelling all those stereotypes that's what for queens on the move for me was like i don't know if y'all know about that light skin dark skin debate that was happening it's probably ongoing now it's kind of died down at the school though but like like i lo like i love hearing controversial stuff like that in the hallway because i'm like get tell me i said help me understand the light skin versus dark skin thing like right and then it just provides an opportunity <laughs> conversation right and like i'm not telling them right from wrong i'm just giving them perspective like well this is this you know and this and this and they go back and they think differently about it um and i think so often we shield kids from having these real conversations that they take their perspective put it in their pocket and take it out later on as adults rather than like having the real conversation now dispelling all those things like Right. There's things the boys say sometimes. And I'm like, mm, mm, mm. right. Being at an all boys school. Right. Like. Mm -hmm. The idea of like the LGBT community is one that I've had to like help dispel so much with these boys. Right. Because they're just. They came in with so many toxic ideas and like. Right. And I'm just like and I remember saying to one kid, like, what if he is gay? Because there was this whole conversation about it one day. And I'm just like, what if he is gay? Right. And it changes stuff when you converse with them about it rather than being like, stop talking about that. Like, why? They're going to talk about it yeah. anyway. They yeah. about to go talk about it through social media. They're going to talk about it and and take their ignorant viewpoints with them. Right. And rather than being like, tell me about what the problem is if that boy gay. Right. And ultimately, you end up reading them their rights anyway, because they're going to walk through and they answer my question. They're going to be like, oh, mm. oh. <laughs> So I watch that next time, right? And um, yeah, so that's that's kind of the work that I'll be doing. A lot of it is like asking questions of them, and um, wow. and seeing where that kind of stuff goes. Asking questions, yo. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's so like simple, but at the same time, it's like incredibly effective, right? <laughs> so effective, they'd be like, huh? Oh. <laughs> be like, wait, what? <laughs> I'm like, how do you understand? Where do you even get that? you know, or stuff like that, or just be like, tell me more. 
right? And they go and they go and everybody's looking at them and they're like, oh, there might be something, might be something wrong there. Um, and then like, you know, and a lot of times they return to you later on and they're thanking you like for stuff. Like I can't even think of the number of those eighth grade girls in that original class that I taught that are not now freshmen in college, which is crazy to think about, but are like, thank you for having that talk with me when we were at Niagara Falls. Like I was scared to get on this particular thing. And you were just like, you should do it because like, you know, experiences come, they don't always come back. So like, unless it like goes against your core and it's the same thing I'll be telling the boys, unless it goes against your core, try something new, unless you right, challenge by choice. Yes. But when the opportunity presents itself, if you can hop on, hop on, because that just makes you just a different versatile, well-rounded individual. So just providing them more opportunities for them to kind of get challenged and have choice is dope. And the school that I work at has just allowed me to do that. The autonomy that I have um, and the way I can use ELA as a catalyst to do some of this work too has been, has been pretty dope. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Real Ballers Read podcast. If you like the show, please be sure to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to us from. And also check out Brittany's social media at TeachingQueenB on Instagram. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time.